It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. You're listening to a version of Gone with the Wind, which is part of a collection of unearthed recordings performed by the iconic Dave Brubeck Quartet, featuring Dave, of course, on piano, alto saxophonist Paul Desmond, bassist Eugene Wright, and drummer Joe Morello. This song and six other tracks are a part of a recently released album called The Dave Brubeck Quartet, Live from the Northwest, 1959, and it's on the Brubeck Editions family label. My guest today is multi-instrumentalist, composer, and son of Dave Brubeck, Chris Brubeck. We will explore the fascinating story behind the sessions when, in early April of 1959, a young and, of course, now legendary sound engineer, Wally Hyder, packed his Ampex tape recorder and other equipment into his station wagon and headed to Portland, Oregon, where he created some of the very first high-quality live recordings of the quartet and performances that were at the Multnomah Hotel and the Clark College Auditorium. Chris Brubeck was a previous guest on this podcast, and he joins me again in this episode. Chris, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to All That's Jazz. I am very happy to be with you and glad that we're both alive and still involved in music and we're making the planet a slightly better place through good music. This is what life's really all about. It's it's a beautiful thing. Well, speaking of good things, the Brubeck family has once again come up with a wonderful thing and you've unearthed some recordings by, of course, the Dave Brubeck Quartet by way of Brubeck Editions, which is your family label. Uh, and I, I think, Chris, that started what, back in 2020? Yeah, it was um, sort of our reaction of what are we going to do when we had the big question mark of COVID. We had um, 2020 was Dave's 100th anniversary centennial. We had all these celebrations set up uh, around the world. And it, w- it was like a big deal. Hollywood Bowl, Royal Albert Hall. Uh, we got in a great big Caribbean jazz cruise where Dave was being honored. Uh, with you know, it's basically it was a big floating jazz festival, and we got to play with a lot of people and do concerts. And then when we com- came back from that cruise, that's when the word started going out. There's this weird thing going around in Australia, and then then we went to England, played at Ronnie Scott's, and then everyone and my family got it, uh, which was really tough. It was really even a close call for my brothers Darius and Dan. So while we were all laid up for months. Uh, it was this say, well, what can we do that's useful? And I said, I can listen on my computer to different headphone tracks, uh, you know, the, the things that are being sent to me and, and start listening and listening. And that's how we came up with the first Brubeck edition uh, recording known as Time Outtakes. What a great run. Uh, here we are the third year into it. And the first one, as you said, was the Time Outtakes, and then that was followed by a favorite of mine. I absolutely love this album, Live in Vienna. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you like it. This is a particularly interesting process because I'm basically going into time traveling. I'm going back into a different time with these 
you know, with Joe Morello and Paul Desmond, Eugene Wright, and my father, you know, these are like childhood crawling around the floor, listening to the band play Mm -hmm. kind of memories that uh, as I got older, you know, I even got to the point where my brothers and I got to play with them. So it was a very unique process to go through all that together. And then to really listen to what geniuses they were and to, uh, it, it was interesting, like with timeout takes, one thing I discovered was like, oh my God, thank God, I can hear a recording of them making mistakes because I thought they were so perfect, <laughs> they never made a mistake. So that's one thing that made Dan and I feel better right away. Like, oh, they also screwed things up in the studio too. But, you know, they were so prolific, they were making four or five albums a year. And um, in, in the case of um, the Vienna record that you mentioned, uh, it was so incredible because it was the only time that Joe and Gene and Dave recorded uh, simply as as a trio. And uh, if you really dig into the history of why that happened, uh, without being too much of an armchair psychologist, um, Paul, it was the last big uh, world tour, European tour by the quartet. Because my father said, I'm going to stop being a jazz musician playing around the world 150 nights a year because I really feel this urge to be a big classical composer and to write for chorus and orchestra. And everyone in this group thought like, ah, oh, what are you, crazy? You're going to give up this, this number one jazz group in the world position to do that? And he said, yeah, I really am going to do it. So, well, you know, they had plenty of warning, but I don't think Paul thought he would really, really do it. You know, <laughs> so, so um, Paul disappearing in Hamburg and not making the lobby call to go to Vienna and having more than a day and a half to get there, to me was sort of like a, a, a what's the right word, uh, a passive aggressive way of saying, you know, you can't take this away from me. I'll show you. And then that's when you got this weird energy in the record, which is, yeah, well, we'll show you how great a trio we can be, even if you're pulling this rather immature little trick. And and then ironically, the next concert after that was uh, the last time we saw Paris, which was a Columbia record. And, and at that point, Paul had rejoined the tour, perhaps with an apology and a hat in hand. I, I don't know what that dynamic was because I wasn't there. But uh, it's certainly... Uh, made for great hard playing by Joe, Gene, and Dave, as if to prove we can we can be great even without you. Even though, of course, they all loved Paul and thought he was really great. And then, then the, of course, the this newest record. Now I'm back time traveling and diving into hearing the group with Paul, and mm-hmm. I'm sort of reversing everything I thought about the group in Vienna. Not that they didn't play great, but just the unique musical relationship that Dave and Paul had is all over this record. This, uh, this sense of, uh, improvised counterpoint just, just as incredible to their ears. And it, you know, made me wonder like, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is more worked out than I thought, but I don't think it is. I think they really were just that good from their interest of, from studying with Darius Mio and being involved in the early days of the octet. And, you know, both being great admirers of Bach, just, just that, you know, this is a skill that, that we can, we can develop and we can do. And, 
is is pointed out in the the liner notes that me and my brothers wrote after many listenings uh, to the record. It, it's just a a skill that was so highly developed, and then and then a few months later they recorded Time Out, and suddenly the thing about odd type signatures and polytonality became like the big hook of like what is this group about so much that i think it sort of eclipsed their amazing improvised counterpoint uh ability and so each record that we've put on a brubeck editions has to me a really significant story and so this story is that plus that there was a young engineer named wally Hyder who recorded this stuff and uh he did such a a great job uh, and it's interesting, he, he's got really famous for two very active studios, both in San Francisco and L.A., and recording famous rock groups like Creedence Clearwater Revival and uh, Jefferson Airplane and, and Crosby, Seals and Nash. But he was a young jazz player in high school. His first love was Stan Kenton and then Dave Brubeck. And then he said, I got to figure out how to record these guys great on the road. And so he got some equipment, put it in his station wagon, followed the group around. And uh, so it, it's really a double story on this record of how this beautiful music came to be captured. Well, it is. And what's, uh, I think, uh, a, a keynote aspect of this is the fact that uh, Wally Heider uh, created a beautiful recording even back then in 1959. Here he is roaming around the Northwest in his station wagon with an Ampex tape recorder, and he... he He's, I don't know, just had a, a good ear and a good sense for sound, uh, for equipment placement like microphones, etc., and acoustics. Uh, and you can tell even, and I'm sure even in the raw recording, that uh, it must have been quite good. Yeah, well, I'll let you in on um, a, a, a badly kept secret as soon as I open my mouth. But the first time I heard this music, I thought, oh, it's a really good performance. There's no way in hell we can use this, though, because out of bad luck, Joe Morello's hi-hat pedal was squeaking a mm. little obnoxiously, and it got worse and worse as the set went on. And so I just said, man, it, it's great, but but no one wants to listen to a hi-hat squeak that bad. We can't use this. And fortunately for us, there is a man who is a, a very devoted fan of Dave's music who lives in Washington named Douglas Anderson. And uh, when I told him this, he said, oh, the music's so great though, Chris. I said, yeah, yeah, but we have like a level of standard. We, we can't, you know, expect people to put up with squeaking all night long. Mm -hmm. And so lo and behold, a few months later, he comes back to me, he said, I figured out how to take every squeak out of the high. <laughs> so then I was able to listen to the record and say, okay. We've got beyond that annoying quality, and let's. I'm going to di dive in now and really, really listen hard because now this music is eligible, to, you know, to my my standards, and that's one of the beautiful things about some modern uh, techniques. And and I know that that we have options now to make music that Dave heard uh, at the time it was being recorded that we can make it better and. There's ways we can do splicing. I still remember D Dave and the engineers at Columbia with pieces of tape hung around their neck. You know, literally, uh, you know, they usually it's splicing pieces of tape and taking out things. And it's a it's a whole different world now that's so much more uh, sophisticated 
about how to go about those things. And, you know, there's a little bit of equalization, but Wally Hyder was so good that even though one tape is made in a nightclub uh, and the other's in a concert hall, uh, it's very much uh, like a compatible sound between the two things. And and it's hard to discern the difference, uh, although there was a different ambient noise uh, in the background from the uh, the club in the uh, Multnomah Hotel, and then Clark College, uh, it was in an auditorium, and it was actually two different days, if I'm correct on this. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so, and that is the main way that you can say it sounds different, because we didn't, like, try to figure out how to magically remove all the people talking and the glasses clinking in the background, but they're pretty much in the background. And, you know, from a modern point of view, a concert hall with big ceilings and stuff, it's going to have more reverb naturally in the room than than a nightclub or wherever they were playing, the exact uh, kind of room I don't know in the Multnomah Hotel. But so to make them more match better, we put a little more reverb on the club side to make it, you know, come up to be more compatible with what the hall was like. But, you know, it, you know, not much of this kind of, of thing. And uh, we're lucky we work with the same engineer all the time who has worked with great artists like, you know, Chick Corea. And in fact, when Dan and Dave and I did a record Dan produced called Trio Brubeck, that was in our friend Scott Petito's first recording studio that literally was built in a small barn in a cornfield. Wow. <laughs> my father would always say, are we recording in the cornfield? Well, <laughs> Now, now Scotty has his own studio up in Catskill, New York, and it's and it's a house that has a studio in it, and he has a separate house where he lives. So he he's he's moved beyond the silo in the cornfield. But um, uh, it's just these long term relationships. You know, Scott knows what we're after. He's a great musician as well as an engineer, and uh, we able we're able to work with a great sense of uh, tradition and pride and going after these things. And, you know, Scott knows Dave very, very well of the, from the records that we've made together. So we're just all part of this continuing tradition of trying to honor the great music coming out of the Dave Brubeck Quartet. So how did this come about with Wally Heider and connecting uh, with Dave? Uh, was there a, a process of, hey, I'd like to record you, may I have your permission kind of thing? Or, or I, I just can't imagine a quartet setting up somewhere and like, who's the guy over there in the corner with the tape recorder? <laughs> well, Wally Hyder uh, definitely had their permission. And I don't know the deep, deep story. I know that one of the things that he did was try to, to go to, to an early Monterey Jazz Festival and record a lot of stuff. And so I am imagining that Dave and Wally Hyder probably met there. And he probably said, you know, I, I, I think I could capture you. And it's interesting because recently I found a letter where Wally Hyder was trying to, was sending a sample of these tapes to someone at Columbia Records. And he was saying, I think it sounds pretty good. Uh, Dave says he thinks it sounds pretty good. Uh, won't you consider using this to put out a record on Columbia? And to my surprise, the guy, uh, who was a, a gentleman named Irving Townsend, who was a producer before Dave was working with the, with the great and famous Tio Macero. And he apparently turned Wally Hyder down. And I was thinking like, how could he do that? And then I realized it. 
It's because the damn hi-hat squeak. He probably heard the same thing I heard and said, hey, we can't do that. And then they would go into the studio uh, a couple months later and they're doing, and they did the record Gone with the Wind as a studio album. Mm -hmm. And much of the material that was in the sets that we heard at the Multnomah Club Hotel was sort of the quartet working up uh, getting familiar with that music. But also, from a Brubeck Edition's point of view, there were some great takes of tunes that were on the Live at Vienna record, so we didn't want to repeat ourselves. I mean, our hope is that we could present music to Dave Brubeck fans that they've never heard before, which is why we ended up deciding, hey, like, like I saw the fact that When the Saints Go Marching In was recorded by my dad. And I, I got to honestly tell you that we used to play that sometimes. And... You know, even though I love jazz of the past, to me, I was going like, oh, that's kind of a, a tired thing. Like, how, how is this going to be great? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's fun. It's fantastic. It swings so hard that I just thought, like, well, we got to start with this because it's astonishing how they can take something that, uh, and even, there's even been some reviewers without me even saying it, saying, oh, I saw Saints going to march in. I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a drag. And then they go like, holy God, what a performance. <laughs> How they played it. That was a really beautiful surprise, and my brothers and I agreed when we heard it. Like, yeah, this is so strong. It's got a, and it never been recorded or released anywhere else before as the the quartet. No other album. So how did how did all this since 1959 that this became sort of unknown or it had to be unearthed? Um, we know there's after my parents passed away, um, my my wife Tish, who's uh, completely intertwined with everything from Brubeck editions and different foundations we have and the jazz camp and, and everything. And, and she, I was out on tour and she was going through lots and lots of tapes that Dave had acquired over the years. And um, so, you know, we found a copy of this tape and, and there are other copies of other tapes that, that you find. Uh, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what our next project's going to be, but um we, you know, it, everything has an interesting story. Like there, one of the things that I'm looking at is Dave did a tour in Australia, and some gentleman that worked for a radio company, uh, let's say the equivalent of CBS Radio or something in Australia, recorded a, a live version, a concert of, of the group, and I never heard anything about it. And and then he died, and his son was cleaning out his closet and said, "Hey, I found these tapes. I think they're really quite good." Hmm. And, and they arrive in the mail, so it's like the treasures just keep coming up, you know. <laughs> and then uh, then I say, if I if I hear the potential, then it's, it's time to dive in and see what we can do with modern technology to make it just sound as good as possible. <laughs> 
So with this recording live from the Northwest, there's seven tracks on the album, but of the seven, it's divided between two performances, one... uh, uh, at the hotel uh, on April 4th and then the next night at Clark College. But are there other songs that maybe uh, you have uh, from those two performances that you didn't include in this recording? Yeah, there are definitely some good performances that I didn't include because they had just been on the Live at Vienna uh, recording. So I didn't want to repeat for our customer base or fan base you know those those tunes and also i mean as far as i'm concerned after listening to maybe 40 different tracks uh, i was wanted to present the creme de la creme you know Mm -hmm. i think those are all the the very best things and i I bet you if i wanted to and went back in there and, and tried to say can i get a volume two out of this i i probably could but uh, and maybe I'm stupid not to actually, <laughs> but I know I know I have the very best in this in this uh, recording. Let me get your take on some of the other tracks that are included in this recording, and and from your perspective, how and why something like Basin Street Blues is on this recording. Well, now that's a song I heard a lot as a little kid, and I was trying to figure out oh why it resonated so well with me and i think it's because i didn't even know that was the term i think it's because it's a call and response which even as a little kid you you understand the architecture of that you know it's got this groove this kind of funky tune and part of it is because it was a club date and there was um you know probably two sets a night for however many nights or maybe three sets a night there was a looseness to it and i think uh, that uh, my father just saying oh what the hell let's have some fun let's play basin street blues i mean i've seen him and play with him so many times that i know he could he could get very nervous and for example by total contrast I remember playing with him at Carnegie Hall once, and he said to me, oh, what's, what is even the point? I'm going to have a big crowd. I'm going to play really great with everyone in the band, and then some smart-ass critic is going to carve me a new one. <laughs> <laughs> because you get in these cycles. Uh, like he, Even on the famous uh, uh, Live at Carnegie Hall record, which up to this particular record the live in the northwest most people were saying was maybe dave's best sounding uh, live recording they were so thrilled 
because uh, Dave and the group had pioneered this thing of playing a jazz waltz with a hi-hat kind of being every other beat. So it was implying four and they were playing in three. And it's an amazing um, tension that you can exercise as a soloist going bouncing back and forth from a three feeling to the jazzy four to a halftime four to a double time four. And then uh, they were just so pleased. They walked off stage, man, we did that thing we've been working on with the jazz wall. So great. And then they, my dad said they got a review saying, Oh, this group from the West Coast, they are, they really are miserable. They can't even play a waltz together. <laughs> it, was, it was perceived as just being a worthless effort. But going back to Basin Street Blues and some of the other tracks, what I love is that I can hear my dad actually, if you listen hard, you'll hear him singing what he's playing. And I know from, from doing hundreds and hundreds of concerts with him, and I don't hold it against my dad. I think this is great. Maybe he was relaxed enough, enough you know, unlike Carnegie Hall, to say, hey, it's a club. Let's just let it all hang out. And, and that's an, a great feeling, I think, you, that is captured on this record. And I, I think it's uh, quite evident in uh, their take on the Multnomah blues. Yeah, they just, they just went for it. I think that after they improvised the blues, someone said, what should we call it? And I said, oh, let's call them Old Noma Blues. seen one review where some, someone said well, that obviously that was a very worked out composition and and I don't know for sure but my intuition having played many gigs with Dave is that that was just everyone let's take a ride by the seat of our pants let's go tell me about two-part contention I know this is a, a Brubeck composition why that choice uh, to include this you could use the rationale or saying that that quite a few of these tunes were destined for the album Gone with the Wind. But I don't think two-part contention was part of that. Previously to that, uh, my dad had done a record called Brubeck Plays Brubeck, which was uh, a solo piano thing he did. And actually, he did it at our house. And there was a lot of noisy kids, me included. So he must have been doing this like between 2 and 4 in the morning. Uh, self-recording, self-engineering, and he also had an Ampeg tape machine. So he did it himself, and I think it really is one of his most classical-sounding pieces, and I think it reflects things that he learned from, from Darius Mio. <laughs> Thank you. 
so how it got into this this uh, set of tune choices, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, it, it does make sense uh, in terms of Dave and Paul's developing their counterpoint. It was a perfect vehicle for them to go really far with that kind of structure. And that's probably why Paul enjoyed playing it uh, too. It was just, okay, this is the piece that will be the super challenge for us to explore the the improvised counterpoint. Well, I think also what's notable about this recording is that uh, among the tracks that are included, uh, there are wonderful standouts and nice solos from uh, each of the four in the quartet. And, and it's it's just a, a pure joy to listen to. You, you clearly hear classic Joe Morello. You definitely hear... Eugene uh, on the bass, uh, just doing only doing things that only Eugene Wright could do. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, sort of doing more than you thought only Gene Wright could do. Uh, you know, a bit more technical in his approach. And actually, that's sort of a, a subtle thing about this record. It has to do with Joe, because there were a couple, like if. Uh, if I were to do a volume two, I might do a couple things that were really big drum solos. But overall, on this record as it turned out, and also in general, I was really struck about how generous Joe was to just supporting the music with amazing swing and not trying to prove that he was one of the, one of the best drummers in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, um, when... It was Paul that wanted Joe Morello to join the band originally because he had heard her play with Mary McPartland. Hmm. And Mary McPartland loved Joe's brush playing and soft playing. And Paul said, ah, that's what, I, that's what we need. I want that too. And then when Dave talked to Joe, he, Joe said, well, I've heard your band. And he says, you know, I, I really have bigger ambitions than to just play time and support people I, I i think i have in me some amazing soloing ability so i don't want to leave marion and uh you know just play simple time behind paul all night long and then my dad said well listen you know I, i'll give you a solo every night because <laughs> you know? he really wanted to have him and i don't know if my father had ever heard joe play in the soloistic way but man, as you all know, and the whole jazz world knew, he could play his ass off in, in that direction. You know, right up there with, I guess, when I was a kid, it was growing up, it was like, you know, who's who's the hotter drummer, Buddy Rich or Joe Morello kind mm. of thing, or Max Roach. Uh, these were the debates you would hear. But um, then, after they had their first gig, even though Paul brought Joe into the, the band, he realized that the audience reacted, they went crazy for Joe's playing when he got a solo and he's going to oh, no, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted to happen to the group. So the, the very first recording date they had after Joe joined the group, Paul was regretting his decision of introducing Joe to Dave so much that he said, if Joe comes to the recording session, I'm not coming to my dad. I don't know if you knew it went that far. And my dad said, Joe is going to be an exciting part of this group. It's going to propel us to new heights. He's a great drummer. He can handle all the polyrhythmic things that I want to do. 
And Paul, I'm sorry if you feel that way. Uh, I was hoping you'd come to the recording session tomorrow. And when the recording session came, Dave called Paul's bluff and Paul showed up. And then, you know, I don't know exactly what the first tune that they were recorded, but the rest is jazz history, right? Because my dad was right about that. It was the the contrasting elements. I always say, you know, in his own weird way, it was like the Beatles or something. <laughs> Everyone was really good at what they did. So lastly, on the, on the uh, recording itself, tell me why it is you, you chose uh, The Lonesome Road. What was it about that that said, you know, this really needs to be on there? It's To me, it was like, it's a very surprising uh, arrangement. It's very stark. Uh, they made some really interesting choices like me personally i didn't even know that tune like you would like i guess if you lived in the 40s and the 50s people just knew that tune Mm -hmm. i didn't really know it so i just loved the way after they play the head they they go into this pedal figure which i think was very brave and uh then i i also think that they double it up at one point in in terms of tempo I just think their approach was was just so original and and so stark. My brother Darius, who was much more academic than me, probably could give you a dissertation for an answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, he just felt like it was so eloquent and 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 told uh, such a story. He found a whole allegory in it that was kind of beyond me. But I said it was in a letter to me. And I said. You sound really smart, and that sounds really good. I would have put that on the album notes. <laughs> well, the the Lonesome Road to me w- was something to where you can really feel the 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 brilliance uh, of the four of them playing together to a point where you know this this ain't on a chart, uh, and, and and they're epitomizing uh, improvisation and and a nice flow to it. Yeah. That's really well said. And, and also, it kind of contrasts like playing The Lonesome Road and Two-Part Contention in a concert hall makes sense. Playing The Lonesome Road in a club, you know, how many people just would have talked right through the, you know, and clinked their glasses uh, through all the graceful silences, you know. So they're such elegant pieces of music. They needed to be in the silence of a concert hall. And... And saying that reminds me of that one of the great things about my my mother is that she was so sick of hearing the group 
not hearing the group in, 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 in clubs in San Francisco, but Dave coming home at two or three in the morning, basically smelling like a giant cigarette because mm-hmm. the clubs were so smoky in those days. And the club owners even liked them to smell smoky. My dad used to say that they would turn off whatever air conditioning and fans there were. So the people that paid to go to the first set were so desperate. Oh, my God, let me out of here. They would <laughs> all go running out. The second audience would come in. But uh, my mom kept saying, like, you know, why can't jazz musicians be playing in the same environment as string quartets or chamber orchestras? It, it's it's really elegant music deserves to be listened to not competing with the cocktail mixers and people trying to pick each other up at the bar and even though that's part of the roots of what jazz is or marching down the street there's a part of it that's so refined and elegant it deserved to just be listened to and so she's the one that wrote to all the schools uh within range of my dad's station wagon in the group and said you should hire uh, my husband's group to play and it went so far as to develop a a 40-page booklet about how to promote a Dave Brubeck concert, you know, how to get newspaper articles, how to have uh, radio support, and how to do it. And she really got jazz musicians out of the concert hall. She's the person that started that. So amongst many achievements, that's one of their great ones. They were a great, wonderful, dynamic duo. As always, thought of affectionately and... You are very fortunate to be a, a part of such a wonderful and, and incredible family. Yeah, I, I uh, thank my lucky stars all the time for that. I wonder about, like, God, you know, it's way beyond me to ever figure it out. As human beings, we all probably try to struggle to figure out what is the structure of the universe. But I'm thinking about, like, how is it that I was lucky enough to have those two people for parents and and lucky enough to have the musician brothers that I have, uh, although uh, my sister has passed away now, and so did one of my brothers. But uh, the four musician brothers were still on the planet, and and it seems like just more than some kind of random luck that we were all a family in this lifetime together. And I know we're all certainly grateful for the opportunity we had to to compose and play and tour and just share the joy of life through music with each other. In the meantime, uh, speaking of the Brubeck family, uh, here's your opportunity for promotion. Uh, How can people hear more about not only this wonderful recording uh, live from the Northwest 1959, but also uh, about what the Brubeck family is up to? Wow, I should have a really concise and intelligent answer for you there, but <laughs> I'm too busy to to usually go out and look at my own website or whatever. It's just a chrisprubeck.com kind of website. We do have a, a newsletter that goes out. Well, Chris, uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the website chrisprubeck.com because that's where I could encourage our listeners like me to sign up to receive that Brubeck newsletter. And all they have to do is go to the contact tab, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and subscribe to start getting the news of all things Brubeck. And by the way, how often does it come out? It goes out about every month, and that's a good way to to keep people apprised with different Brubecks and their different concert schedules. Well, this is a fascinating story. You are a fascinating man, and you come from a fascinating family. 
that people can truly enjoy the music of Dave Brubeck Quartet from 1959 with a uh, superlative recording. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, as always. Chris, thank you very much, and we appreciate your being our guest on All That's Jazz. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with multi-instrumentalist and Grammy-nominated composer Chris Brubeck. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.